Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, our monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Marlon and Shweta from Colombo, as well as Aimun from Karachi and Sana from New Delhi. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey. So our main stories this week will be on how protests in Iran around hijab rules are being discussed around the region and on a new transgender bill being debated in Pakistan. We'll begin with the situation in Iran where there have been protests following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested by Iran's Gashd-e-Ershad, or Morality Police, in a metro station in Tehran, for violating the country's strict dress codes on the wearing of hijab. Women in Iran have been speaking out about the Morality Police's heavy-handed approach, cutting locks of their hair in support of Amini, or taking off their headscarves and burning them, while chanting slogans like, Women, Life, Freedom, and dead to the moral police. The story has captured the world's attention, including in the South Asian region. That's right, Raisa. Uh, so while women in Iran are protesting against the state violence and uh, mandatory dress code against the hijab, Muslim women in India are fighting for their right to wear hijab. Uh, to give some context, in India, state government of Karnataka banned headscarves in schools early this year, which sparked protests by Muslim women and a larger debate on freedom of choice and moral policing by the state. While the BJP government pushes the narrative of you know, women empowerment and secularism, debate around the hijab ban in India should also be seen as part of a larger pattern by the right-wing government to attack minorities, especially Muslims in India, and criminalize their identity and spread Islamophobia. So it wasn't surprising when the protests in Iran against the mandatory dress code was co-opted by the right-wing parties in India for their own agenda, where they weaponize you know, the hijab to further criminalize and do moral policing of Muslim women in India. Uh, in terms of news coverage, uh, much of the TV debates and opinion pieces in India around the hijab ban are focused more on analyzing and targeting Islamic books and Islam as a religion and less on bodily autonomy or state oppression, which of course, you know, goes with the BJP government's narrative of spreading Islamophobia and shows Muslim women in India as, you know, quote-unquote victims and devoid of any agency. Which is so disingenuous if you think about it. What the women in India and the women in Iran are demanding is basically the same thing that the state stays out of their wardrobe. Regulating women's attire to expand state control is an age-old tactic anyway. For theocratic regimes like Iran, where imposition of something as dynamic as religion into law becomes a challenge, the bodies of vulnerable communities like women become the first targets for the state to mark its territory and display its power. Similarly, in places like India, where religion is being mixed with the affairs of the state and majoritarianism is on the rise, Women from minority communities find their bodies being viewed with suspicion as they battle discriminatory laws. The justifications given for this violence sound similar as well. For the Iranian regime, 
it is to supposedly protect women from Western influence. For the Indian regime, it is to quote-unquote protect Muslim women from the patriarchy of the Muslim men. Either way, rendering the woman devoid of agency to make her own choice. Muslim women are being repeatedly asked to choose between their cultural identity and their gender identity, forcing them to walk a double-edged sword. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Ayman and Sana. Now, in Sri Lanka, following the East attacks, there was a ban on wearing full-face veils, including Muslim burqas, in public. Um, this was brought forward citing national security. And since there was widespread anti-Muslim sentiments in Sri Lankan society at that time, which led to stigma and violence against Muslim communities, the majority was in favor of the ban. Um, there was also confusion which ensued this ban because most Sri Lankans could not distinguish between a hijab, a niqab or a burqa or even an abaya. So the majority decided to interpret this as any form of face covering and Muslim women all over Sri Lanka were constantly harassed in public spaces, in business premises and well-known supermarkets as well. So this piece of legislation was a disaster and it was nothing short of racial profiling and discriminatory on so many levels. And investigations into East attacks did not reveal any clear links between face coverings, including face veils, and the East attacks. The bombers were all men who did not use face coverings. So it was absurd on so many levels as well. This ban was actually revisited by the subsequent government in 2021 where it was approved by the cabinet and uh, the public security minister Sarat Virasekar at that time stated that burqas is a sign of religious extremism. That's right, Marlon. And um, I remember there were reports that some Muslim women were being denied entry into spaces of business, including even banks. And I also remember seeing um, on Twitter somebody saying one of their relatives even got into a car accident because uh, a driver in another vehicle seemed to be reacting to the fact that they were wearing hijab. So um, there were definitely some impacts. And um, some women, including Muslim activists who chose to wear niqab or burqa, said that they were actually, you know, they confined themselves to their homes because they did not want to leave the house. And in Sri Lanka too, again, as in India, the discussion focused on whether the choice to wear hijab, burqa, and niqab was freely made or not, and it did often uh, lapse into Islamophobia, unfortunately. Thanks, Raisa. And if we look at the situation in Afghanistan, um, in September last year, there was a powerful social media campaign where Afghan women from around the world shared photos of themselves wearing traditional colorful clothes using the hashtag do not touch my clothes. Now, this protest was in response to a sit-down demonstration at Kabul University where about 300 women appeared in head-to-toe all-black garments, waving Taliban flags in support of the strict dress code for female students and gender segregation at schools and universities, which was mandated by the Taliban. 
And on 7th May this year, the Taliban's Ministry for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice announced that women and girls should not leave their homes unless necessary, wearing the head-to-toe burqa showing only their eyes. Similar to the restrictions during the Taliban's previous rule between 1996 and 2001. Now, despite threats and risk of imprisonment, women's rights activists who have spent years struggling against the Taliban's violation of women's rights are protesting this move in Kabul. It is also important to note here that Muslim women have always been leading and staging protests against state violence and oppression, as Sweta also just mentioned about how women have been protesting in Afghanistan and also with uh, what's happening in Iran. But in terms of international coverage on Muslim women, it has always been fixated around, you know, veil, hijab and burqa, where women are depicted as victims, someone who needs to be saved from their own community and religion. As many would remember how in 2001, when the US declared war on terror on Afghanistan, it claimed, and I quote, fight against terrorism was also a fight for the rights and dignity of women. And a lot of reporting around the war was then focused on, you know, saving Muslim women. And much of that outrage and reporting is missing now, you know, on the recent killings of girls from the Hazara community in Afghanistan. Similarly, as many activists from Iran are also pointing out, uh, much of the international coverage on protests against the mandatory dress code in Iran is focused on it being as a symbol of liberation, a protest against Islam, which again falls into the same, you know, Western savior of West versus Islam trope, rather than a nuanced coverage about, you know, freedom of freedom to choose, state violence and repression, state surveillance, internet shutdowns, you know, gender, economic and political context of it. I agree, uh, Sana. I think a lot of the coverage that I've seen has also kind of fixated a lot on the gender aspect. Yeah. And um, it's something that's been forgotten or it's only been reported in standalone pieces is that there's a lot of other factors as well. You know, this was Mas Amini's death was a sparking point, but Iran was also experiencing economic issues and, exactly. you know, political turmoil. And, you know, it's... Unfortunately, it's only crystallized into this thing, which has kind of become led to a lot of generalized international coverage. Exactly. And I saw some reporting on it, but then it depends on, you know, like if there is a beat or if there is a, you know, page which is focused on IT, then they would maybe specifically talk about, you know, maybe internet shutdowns. Like, But general coverage is basically on, you know, whether hijab is allowed or not, or, you know, it's like it's forced on them. Thank you, guys. Our next story for this episode concerns the Transgender Persons Protections of Rights Act of 2018 in Pakistan, which is considered among the most progressive legislations regarding the rights of the transgender communities around the globe and is now being attacked on social media by the religious right. Formulated in conjunction with the civil society and medical experts and passed in unison by all political parties in the parliament, The Act defines transgender as anyone with a mixture of male and female genital features or ambiguous genitalia, 
a person assigned male at birth but who has undergone castration or any person whose gender identity or expression differ from their assigned sex at birth while it has a long way to go before ensuring all civil rights of the transgender persons the law gives trans people the right to get themselves registered as per self perceived gender identity with all government departments allows them to get a driver's license and a passport prohibits discrimination against transgender persons in education employment and healthcare as well as harassment within and outside of the home the law is particularly progressive because of its decolonial aspect the act negates the colonial criminal tribes act of 1871 that criminalized the transgender community in south asia reverting to a more complex understanding of the question of gender that existed prior to the arrival of the european empires in the region um and i mean wasn't there a lot of pushback especially from the religious right wing yes marlon it became a storm on social media out of nowhere really no one knows why 4 years after the law was passed it attracted the attention of the religious right in such a manner disinformation campaigns were rife on social media websites led primarily by political leadership of jamaat e islami a religious political party the campaign claimed that the law was quote unquote vulgar because it promoted homosexuality in the country in negation of the laws according to the critics of the law the act allowed citizens to change their genders at will allowing them to then marry people of their biological sex this is in fact blatantly untrue not only does the law not allow people to just change their genders it is also silent on the question of marriage The law actually does not allow transgender persons to get married, removing any questions regarding the legalization of same-sex marriages. While it is based on lies, what this transphobic campaign manages to do is make an oppressed community even more vulnerable to the violent violence it routinely faces in the country, while threatening to ro- roll back hard-fought rights. Yes, Iman, and in addition to this harmful campaign. Violent attacks targeting transgender people have increased over the last few months in Pakistan. On 11th September, a gunman opened fire on three transgender persons and their driver returning in their car from a music event in Peshawar. Earlier on 1st September, a transgender person was stabbed to death in Karachi. Over the last two years, activists who have been vocal about the increased targeting of transgender community in Pakistan have been assaulted and received death threats facing continued discrimination and violence pakistan's transgender community are still denied medical care or forced to flee without adequate measures in place to safeguard their rights and now for our next segment around south asia in 5 minutes In Nepal there's a constitutional crisis in the making where the president of Nepal Bidya Devi Bandari is facing wide criticism for her recent decision regarding an amendment to the citizenship bill she has refused to sign the amendment to the citizenship bill of uh, 2006 um now this amendment was passed by the house of representatives of Nepal in July 2022 uh when and but president bandari returned the bill which was endorsed by the ruling coalition of the nepali congress uh, the cpn the maoist center the cpn uh, unified socialist the janata uh, samajwadi party and the rashtriya uh, janamoka um, along with the uh, loktantrik uh, samajwadi party stating that the bill was discriminatory uh, to single mothers um 
when it becomes low, more than 500,000 people would get Nepal's citizenship certificates, allowing them to vote in the general elections in November. Um, and right now, the president is accused of breaching the constitution and the Supreme Court has demanded an explanation of her actions regarding this matter. And over uh, in, you know, along the Bangladesh-Myanmar border, there has been relentless firing and shelling. Um, simultaneously, there's been an increase in gunfighting between the military junta and the Rakhine-based ethnic armed organization Arakan Army. Both conflicts are impacting the Rohingya, with at least one teenager killed and six others injured due to cross-border shelling. And this has impacted an area where an estimated 4,000 Rohingya refugees live. Bangladesh's foreign minister, A.K. Abdul Momen, said that they have sealed their border in order to try and prevent Rohingya from seeking asylum in the country. In general, there have been attempts to repatriate some of the Rohingya back to Myanmar, which has been resisted by some of the refugees because they were, of course, fleeing violence from Myanmar in the first place and discrimination. Uh, but now that process for those who are willing to go back is going to be impeded due to the conflict. The UN is also reporting that the military is imposing restrictions on delivering humanitarian aid and essentials into Rakhine. Apart from this, refugees living along the Bangladesh-Myanmar border say that their livelihoods are being impacted by the shelling, with the constant sound of mortars deterring workers from conducting agricultural cultivation. At the same time, activists working on the spread of hate speech released information on their interactions with social media platform Facebook and its parent company Meta, alleging that Facebook took too long to take any action on the spread of hate speech and misinformation targeting the Muslim community and particularly the Rohingya on its platform, which has in some cases led to violence. Uh, in India, on 7 September, income tax authorities conducted raids related to FCRA or Foreign Contribution Regulation Act contravention in funds in several states. As part of this, it also conducted quote-unquote survey operation in Delhi-based think tanks, Center for Policy and Research, NGO Oxfam India and Media Foundation IPSMF. Uh, so IPSMF has been funding a range of independent media organizations like Alt News, The Wire and EPW. Uh, the step is being seen as an attack on independent media and voices. Uh, in another development, on 27 September, the Government of India banned Popular Front of India, or PFI, and its associated bodies under the draconian UAPA law for the next five years. Uh, PFI maintains that it works for the rights of Muslims and marginalized communities in India. Uh, its associated body, Campus Front of India, called the move undemocratic and anti-constitutional and said in a statement that the ban will be challenged in court. Uh, this, this ban was announced, uh, announced after the government conducted raids and arrested more than 100 PFI members from across the country and filed cases under provisions of the UAPA, Indian Penal Code and Arms Act, among others. On 21st September, the US-based Stanford Internet Observatory, which studies the abuse of internet technologies, published a report on an unidentified online network running influence operations using bot accounts pretending to be Kashmiri users on Twitter. So the accounts associated with the network were posting pro-Indian army propaganda, praising their military successes in Kashmir. And there were smear campaigns against Kashmiri journalists like Fahad Shah. 
They were labeling critical reportages anti-national expressions, and the tweets also took a number of approaches to criticizing Pakistan and China. For example, highlighting university student protests in Balochistan and using hashtags like boycott China. The report concluded by stating the suspended network is large and political and the findings only scratch the surface, signaling a disturbing trend we're seeing across the region. And do check out our latest Twitter space recording on surveillance and the impact of social media in the global south to find out more. Now it's time for our next segment, Bookmarked. Uh, so I recently watched this documentary, uh, Life Cycle by Malini Sir. So the documentary Life Cycle explores uh, the everyday life of city dwellers like daily wage workers, teachers, environmentalists, etc. who use bicycles and how they navi- uh, navigate the ever-changing changing city of uh, Calcutta in West Bengal. As you know that Calcutta is a very old city. Unfortunately, the road space of Calcutta is around 6%. And we've got a huge population to handle. Police also, I don't think they even care for who is cycling or not. But the problem is, suddenly they one, one evening they realize that this is a no cycling zone and we have to catch the cycle. Uh, I thought apart from the experiences that people share, all the problems the cyclists faced, it was also, you know, a commentary on the design and infrastructure of a city. Like, who's the city for? Who benefits from the rules that are made? Who gets left out? How do then people navigate it? And uh, although the documentary focuses on Calcutta, I thought uh, it is true for every other city in India as well. Like, you know, when I bought a cycle in Delhi, which was mostly for recreational purposes, I had to wake up really early to be able to cycle on, on roads because else, like, when the office hours would start, like, it was close to impossible to navigate the roads because there are no separate lanes for cycles in Delhi except for fewer areas. So you could imagine how did that go. Like, I had to stop cycling and, like, kept it in the garage. Uh, there is a dialogue in the documentary where this man says, like, cycling on Indian roads is like a mutual insulting department. <laughs> and I totally relate to it. And uh, the documentary is online on YouTube. And we will uh, leave a link for anyone who's interested in watching it. And uh, did anybody else watch the documentary? So I have to admit that I um, forgot until the last moment. And so... I hastily watched it over my lunch hour and I I really liked it. Um, it was so fascinating to see, you know, this whole economy that has sprung up around uh, bicycle use and, you know, so many things from like milk to newspapers, yeah. um, you know, so many vendors are there which were using cycles and it was really a part of society and how, you know, the slow development of the city is now leading to, you know, this government push for modernity, uh, which seems to, you know, favor motor cars. I was also thinking of in Colombo, you know, for we've, you know, recently there was a discussion on, there was actually an event on cycle use. And I think it was the Dutch ambassador, like 
did this event and she was trying to encourage everyone to cycle and people were just ridiculing her um, at the time being like you know uh, this is Colombo nobody rides bikes here um, you know this doesn't suit our society and it's I was thinking of that and how it's so ironic that now because of the economic crisis we're seeing the return to bicycle yeah. use like in my area I remember walking up to the junction one day and everyone most people were walking and looking very like frazzled and carrying heavy shopping bags. And then the next week when I walked to the top of the road, there were much more people on bicycles. And even now, in my area at least, some people are still kind of cycling around. So there's been a kind of shift back. Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, I also looked at the docu- documentary. It's, it was, it's really nice, it, like very nicely done. And, uh, and like just like Raisa, I, I just... I was reminded of, you know, how we had, we were almost forced to, you know, bring out our, you know, like rusty bicycles and, and use them because we, there was no other way of getting around, especially for about a month and a half uh, when there was the, the fuel crisis. Um, but I think if you, going back to your point, Raisa, about the Dutch ambassador and how, you know, everyone was like ridiculing what she was uh, proposing. There is, just like the documentary says, there's also a danger, like in Colombo Roads, because there's no designated uh, uh, lane for uh, bicycles. So uh, just riding in general is, is quite a dangerous thing in, in, in a big city, like uh, even in, in like, uh, like a place like Colombo, uh, especially when there's no designated lane. And uh, But now I think, uh, just like you, I see uh, a lot of bikes, a uh, lot of bicycles, uh, people on bicycles, on the main roads so hopefully uh, you know that would uh, uh, i mean we there'll be more and more people who uh, who would use bicycles now yeah i've also seen like more people are wearing like those neon vests um, to kind of i think indicate mm. to people because we also have an issue of lack of proper street lighting down some of the like roads yeah. so i i've seen people wearing this fluorescent vests because of this issue because yeah, some of our roads don't have lanes as well. But like outside of Colombo, I think there is a very vibrant bike bike culture. Like for example, uh, Nigambo, uh, because of all the flat roads. I mean, where I'm, I'm, I'm from Kandy. We because of all the hills, we don't really ride, <laughs> ride bicycles. But um, most of uh, like places outside of Colombo, uh, like even in the in the north and also the north central provinces. Um, Bike use is quite, uh, I, I think it's, it's quite prevalent. Um, um, yeah, so, I mean, because it's not so, I mean, the roads are not so busy and I think uh, uh, bikes are relatively, they were uh, less expensive than uh, like motorcycles, for example. Yeah, for sure. Definitely in the north and east as well. Like you see a lot of people riding bikes and like a lot more women riding bikes. I remember when I first started going up, that was one of the things that struck me that was, um, very different. Shweta, do you want to go ahead with your recommendation? Yeah, okay. So my recommendation is a collection of essays called The East Was Red, Socialist Culture in the Third World, edited by Vijay Prashad. Um, it's about the impact of socialist culture in various parts of the Third World told through people who grew up reading or later encountered books like Russian classics in translation illustrated Soviet children's books, um, philosophy texts, and also kind of magazines and early socialist cinema. 
Um, the essay I connected with the most was by Deepa Basti. She's a writer based in Karnataka who is also a Himal contributor. She writes about her discovery of her grandfather's collection of Soviet-era books. So he was a communist intellectual, a doctor, and he participated in the Indian independence movement. And her essay looks at kind of Russian publishing houses and translators and other interesting exchanges like beyond South India. Um, in Sri Lanka, I didn't personally grow up reading these books, but I was told that the Soviet Sri Lanka Friendship Society used to um, distribute Russian books translated in Sinhala and Tamil and kind of Russian children's books were a staple. And when the second JVP insurrection happened in 1987, people were forced to destroy these books and some were even arrested for having these books. Um, so I thought this was a great read to kind of give a sense of the cultural exchanges that drew in the Third World Project and the Soviet Union, like especially in South Asia. Um, so that's my recommendation for this month. Yeah, I think um, like when I when I was growing up, I mean, there was so much of uh, like Russian literature that was translated mm -hmm. and also Russian fairy tales. Um, I specifically remember uh, the the witch, Babaiga witch. I don't know whether oh you Oh my guys. God, yeah. yes. <laughs> I've heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> so um, so I, I remember reading a lot of uh, fairy tales and uh, reading a lot of literature in, in Singhala uh, because there were lots of translations that were available at that time. Um, and I think Sri Lanka has a history of this... Uh, fascination, uh, not just with uh, um, Russian fiction, but also Russian plays as well. So Chekhov uh, was, uh, was translated and brought to, brought to Sri Lanka and was, you know, there were lots of plays that were produced, uh, Russian plays that were produced in Sri Lanka in Singhala as well. So uh, there have always been this like very vibrant cultural exchange between, uh, um, between you know, Russian literature and, and Sri Lanka, I think. Of course, the 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 other the socialist literature also um, uh, made its way here, and uh, it um, it kind of uh, I mean very clearly there's a link between <clears throat> what happened um, with the insurrections, which uh, with in the seventy one insurrection and also in the uh, eighty nine insurrection that you um, that you alluded to. Interesting. I love kind of asking people about. It's like everyone has a story about these um, books, so it's really interesting. Yeah, so I mean, like my library, my village was like very small, but still we had like uh, Tolstoy, we had Dostoevsky, all the translations. So I, um, I remember reading um, Crime and Punishment when I was like uh, uh, nine, I think. It shouldn't have been, <laughs> shouldn't have been reading that <laughs> at that because that actually terrified me as well, just like Babaika. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so there was lots of Russian literature that was available. I tried to read War and Peace. I, I couldn't get it. Uh, but yeah, uh, so lots of uh, translations that were available at that time. So my recommendation is actually a podcast. Uh, it's a bit meta to recommend a podcast on a podcast, but it is what it is. Um, so this podcast is called Upstream, uh, which does both quarterly documentary and kind of regular conversation series um, unpacking economics. And they recently released um, part one of um, a documentary, which is looking at green transition. 
And although it's not set in South Asia, I feel like it's really relevant for the region. It pretty much looks at how this push for renewable energy that we're seeing is leading to continued resource extraction from the global south. And it actually starts off in Chile and Bolivia and looks at how minerals like lithium, copper, cobalt and other materials that are kind of necessary for things like electric vehicles, solar panels and so on are being increasingly mined uh, from, you know, countries in the global south and, you know, sent to US and Europe. And it essentially looks at greenwashing and how the current system for exporting minerals are still, you know, based on this exploitative um, system. Uh, I also really liked how they looked at how debt burdens in Latin America was also contributing to this continued resource extraction and that they also recognize that the answer is obviously not stopping the push for renewable energy, but being more thoughtful about how to make that transition in a sustainable way. Um, and in the next part, they're like going to be talking more about solutions in part two of this documentary. Um, but I really thought it was an interesting listen and especially relevant because many countries in the region are trying to expand capacity for renewable energy uh, and are even trying to become manufacturing hubs. Um, I know that India, for example, is making some investment you know, in this regard. And even in Sri Lanka, a lot of people have been trying to switch to solar energy because of higher electricity bills. And, you know, I've been following uh, some of uh, my friends have been trying to convert their houses to solar energy uh, and, you know, trying to get down these panels and this whole process. And it just gives a little bit more context in into why, you know, it shouldn't just be a continued rush and expansion of renewable energy, but something that should lead to more exploitation uh, in our region. And um, on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Do head to our website, himalmag.com, to see more of Himal's work. And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.